Hi, this is Devin, and I just have a quick disclaimer for anyone listening who may have a weak stomach. We chose a title for this episode that hopefully relays the theme already, but just in case, today's topic isn't for the squeamish or those prone to, you know, turkey vulture. Wait, what? Did you just use turkey vulture as a verb? Yeah, you know, because they can projectile vomit up to 10 feet. Why? Defensive vomiting? Why else? That explains nothing. Maybe I can help explain. Good idea. Richard, allow me to introduce you to Terry the Turkey Vulture. Uh, seriously? Why are you always finding anthropomorphic animal guests? Terry, care to explain the whole vomiting thing? So, no explanation for me? Sure, yeah. Basically, if I feel threatened, I'll puke in your face. Oh, God. Yeah, in my stomach, acid is some pretty harsh stuff on account of the fact that I can basically eat dead things for a living. So, you wouldn't want to get that stuff in your eyes. That sounds awful. Are you threatening me? I swear I'll- Richard, what's wrong with- stop threatening her. I'm not, I'm just saying it's, it's gross. He's raising his voice. Alright, you know what? Everyone calm down, okay? Fine. Fine. Anyway. Like I was saying before, Richard started threatening me. I wasn't. It's like super soaker pepper spray, but it also comes in handy to just shed a few pounds so we can take off. We tend to gorge ourselves a bit, which means we have to wait a while to fly, which makes us pretty vulnerable. So, we puke. It's like a plane dumping cargo. (laughs) Fascinating, right? I mean, yeah, but also really gross. Are you threatening me? No. What, I, no, what you about think that, that you can threaten me? What about that sounds? No, hey, don't do Please don't do that. Oh my god. Oh my god, Devin, please do something about Oh my god. Ow. Oh. oh my god. I'm Devin. I'm Richard. And this is The Wildlife, a new podcast from thewildlife.blog about curiosity, discovery, and all things wild. How do you want to get started? Do you just want to jump straight into it? Sure. I mean, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think we can do that. Well, okay, maybe let's just explain what we're doing here first. Okay, sounds good. Last time... We did an episode busting bat myths as the first part of an intermittent series called Myth Understood. Right, and if you heard that episode, you might remember that we very briefly mentioned some recently published research, and well, today we have an episode that is sort of a part two to that part of that last episode. But it also dives a little bit deeper into a topic that we both just really couldn't stop thinking about. So today, we have a story that takes us all the way from Copenhagen to the rainforest of South America. From the belly of the beast to its excrement. As we explore nature's vampires. But these vampires are nowhere near Romania, right? Yeah, nowhere near Romania. (laughs) That is the voice of Marie Lissandra Zapita Mendoza, who recently finished her postdoc in Copenhagen, Denmark and whose recently published research on vampire bats is at the center of this story. Just for clarification, where can vampire bats be found? They are actually only found in, in, uh, from mid-Mexico down to South America. And this is the 
one of the cool things about vampire bats, because even though bats are all over the world, vampire bats can only be found in that region. In all likelihood, you've never actually seen a vampire bat. Movies and television seem to always use another creepier looking species as a stand-in. Much like how they tend to use hawk sounds for eagles, probably because eagle sounds aren't nearly as appealing. But that's another story. Anyway. The, the, like the teeth, they are very characteristic. So you can, you can usually, I would say, differentiate them from the other bats. They are small, brown, overall a pretty standard looking bat. You know, with beady eyes, triangular ears. They also have like special teeth. Two small, sharp buck teeth and a flared out nose. There are three species of vampire bats. And the three species of vampire bats, they look a little bit different. The one that we studied, the common vampire bat, is the ugliest one of the three. <laughs> yeah, bats definitely differ a lot on the cute scale, with some of them looking like mini-winged dogs, like fruit bats, and others looking like little demons, like wrinkle-faced bats. So, I know you have been on this kick, and don't get me wrong, but what is so interesting about them? Well, because they are what are known as true obligate sanguivores. That it survives solely off of blood that obligates sanguivory. Wait, wait. Sanguivore. Like a sanguinar vampiris is the name for a vampirism in the Elder School series. Right. But, uh... Why is that so important? I mean, there are a lot of animals that eat or drink blood, like uh, ticks or mosquitoes, bedbugs, leeches. Yeah, but that's just it. Vampire bats are mammals. All those other ones are insects or arachnids or something else, not mammals. And that's why the vampire bats are so special. The more you know. As far as even other vertebrates that are obligate sanguivores, well, in the basal part of the vertebrates, there are the lampreys, and they they actually in the first stage of their lives they they feed off filtering like whales, and then they have a, a metamorphosis and they change completely, and then they live off of blood only. Richard, have you ever seen the mouth of a lamprey? Um, no. Why don't you pull one up real quick? Okay, one second here. Do, 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 not copyright infringement, because I'm gonna change the tune. Oh, holy Christ. Yeah. That looks like it's from a horror movie. Right? That makes me not want to go in the water. Complete stuff of nightmares, right? Oh, by the way, we okay. have those in Lake Superior. What? That's not just, like, <laughs> deep in the ocean? Nope. That's that's actually at a place where people swim all the time. Yeah. They're an invasive species in the Great Lakes system. In the ocean. Oh my god. Yeah. There's just so many teeth. They survive mostly off of blood and other bodily fluids, but they have been found with vertebrae and organs and all sorts of other fun stuff in their stomachs as well. So basically, they just latch onto the side of their host and live off of them like a parasite for really as long as they can. And there are other birds, like the vampire finch, that sometimes eat its blood, but it's not the only thing it eats. Wait, a bird? Yep, a bird. 
There are actually a few different kinds of birds that do this, but the one that she's mentioning here is the aptly named vampire finch. They live on two of the main islands in the Galapagos Island system. They're actually really closely related to another bird from that system called the sharp-beaked finch. And, you know, really they survive mostly on what you'd regularly expect a bird to eat. You know, insects and seeds and things like that. But sometimes they'll go ahead and peck away like the flesh of a blue-footed booby or other birds and drink the blood that comes out. That's just, that's so weird. I would have never expected a bird to drink blood. And that's within all vertebrates. All vertebrates that drink blood. That's not just within mammals. That's why the vampire bats are so special. And the idea that a mammal can survive off of blood, that right there is astonishing in itself. Well, why exactly is that? Well, because there's not really much in it. <laughs> there's tons of water, and just a tiny percentage of it is actually nutrients, but it's mostly proteins and if your diet is almost only proteins then you may have problems with urea. Urea is a colorless crystalline compound, it's the main nitrogenous waste product that results from breaking down protein in mammals and it's excreted in urine. Then you know it is blood right so it might contain some pathogens. Mainly viral pathogens. So you'd think that the whole idea of drinking blood from another creature would be incredibly dangerous. And it's just gross. Just very unsanitary. Right. And really, this was a whole point of a research, to figure out how they're able to do this. So, I know you're probably getting to it, but what exactly prompted her curiosity in vampire bats? I mean, she lives in Copenhagen, right? And vampire bats are a world away. Sure. Yeah, it actually started a little bit funny. came to, to Denmark, to Copenhagen, I was an intern in the group of my later PhD supervisor, Tom Gilbert, and one of his projects at that time was to identify which mammals are in a forest without, oh, a forest or jungle, um, without using camera traps for conservational studies or, you know, just to see which species are there. You see, there's a lot of importance in knowing what animals live where in relation to a lot of things like policy making, conservation, uh, prioritization of efforts, basic ecological understanding, a, a ton of things. And researchers are really always looking for new ways of doing this. And the, the way in which they were doing it was with leeches. Leeches? Yeah. Leeches. So basically, leeches would be gathered from certain areas where they were hoping to examine the biodiversity and they'd extract the blood because, well, leeches drink blood, right? Oh, that's cool. So they used the blood that was in the leeches and found the DNA to see what they were feeding on? Right, and they'd sequence the DNA looking for certain markers. Special pieces of DNA? That could distinguish which mammalian species were living in the area through the lens of a leech. It's a pretty smart method. Then someone had the realization, well, wait, leeches aren't the only animals here that drink blood. We've got vampire bats. And so I was analyzing this data. But I was actually not really interested on it because I didn't want to see what they ate. I wanted to see why they ate what they ate. And that's how the idea was born.
So I went to, to Tom, her supervisor, and I told him, Tom, I want to study this, so I need you to get me the vampire vagino. <laughs> and then he said, Huh, yeah, sounds cool. All right, let's do it. Then within a few days, he was contacting his collaborators and began this grassroots crowdsourced effort to begin the sequencing of the vampire vagino. He was really supporting. Oh my love. Oh my god. I love Tom. He's a really good supervisor. That's pretty awesome. I, I love the sort of um, international team effort behind this. Right? Wait a second. But in order to sequence the genome, don't they need uh, some sort of biological sample? So, I mean, were they able to somehow, like, catch live bats or what? Yeah, you know, you're totally right, but no captive bats, no. I mean, they already had portion sequence elsewhere, but... Did they use more blood? No, I mean, that would have been pretty difficult. Besides, the bigger question here sort of revolves around digestion. So more importantly... Poop? Hoop. We had to get some fecal samples of vampire bats and of bats with other diets and sequence the microbiome of, his, of the fecal samples. And so the microbiome is all the, the microbes that are in there. Well, the microbiota, technically speaking. Uh, the microbiota is all the microbes that are in there. And so you sequence them and then you can see who they are and what they are doing there. So like how we have a microbiome or all these microbes that live within us that help us digest certain things or help our immune response, vampire bats have the same thing. Exactly. And so it was really difficult to get all these fecal samples from the different bats. It took me like a year and a half to get all the samples that I needed. Why so long? Well, they had to contact a lot of different collaborators around the world. And they had to wait a really long time to get those samples. Partially because they had to get a lot of permits, like export permits for, well, poop. It's a biological sample. It could carry different diseases. Who knows what? Yeah, it, it, it was rather stressful. Oh yeah, and then after we got all the samples and we got the, all the sequencing, I had to set up all the pipelines for the analysis of, of the sequences and compare them and then make sense of the results. So let me get this straight. They collected fecal matter from different types of bats to basically look at the microbiota and determine which of those was not like the other, hoping to see if vampire bats had a special set or something like that, right? Bingo. And what they find. So when I was looking at the results, I thought, oh my god, this is very clear. It couldn't be clearer. <laughs> and that was very, very surprising. And that is a complete rarity in science. Science isn't like you see it in the movies where it's this clean lab and things just happen and they work and fall into place almost immediately. No, more often than not, results don't line up or you find something that was unexpected. But this... This was one of those rare moments where it was different. That's what, what we wanted, and that's why we chose that model of a study. Because we thought, okay, if there's anything here, since this species has such an extreme weird diet, whatever that has to be there is going to be seen pretty clear. What exactly did they see? The genes of the bacteria in the microbiota were perfectly equipped for handling an all-blood diet. We were very happy. <laughs> it, it, everything made sense. So what was special about that bacteria? Well, it, it provides some of the nutrients that the vampire bat needs that is lacking from the food. It also helped against some of the waste products. Well, it's not help against. It's more like help deal with the, some of the 
products in the blood that you wouldn't want. For instance, there's they have some genes that may help it deal with the the free iron. Actually, blood blood by itself doesn't have much free iron ions, but after hemolysis, hemolysis that's the disintegration of red blood cells with the release of hemoglobin. It might be an issue. So that that was, for example, one of the ways. Which got me thinking. You know how human immunities or antibodies can be transferred from the mom to the baby through milk? Yeah, which is super awesome, by the way. I know, right? Well, so, okay, mother vampire bats. This is another one of those things that there was a disclaimer for, because it's kind of gross sounding. Uh, they regurgitate blood for their babies while they're too young to hunt for themselves. So actually, you know what, side note, vampire bats in general, they are incredibly sweet because they are known to share meals with individuals in the roost that maybe missed out on a meal one night by, well, you know, puking it up and then the other one can eat it. And then they usually end up returning the favor. It's gross, but also kind of sweet, right? Fascinating to observe, like, such kindness in an animal species, but also really gross. I mean, I would not want vomited up blood for dinner myself. Right. I mean, I will say, so let's say you're a vampire bat, and you're being compassionate, and you decide to throw up a little bit of blood for your friend. Okay. <laughs> compassionate in a, in a vampire bat sense. And it doesn't return the favor for you later on, then you're pretty much going to get shunned. If you ever go hungry again. Oof. Yeah. But anyway, my thought was, could mothers be seeding or priming the guts of their babies for a lifelong diet of blood by doing this? Well, what did Mary have to say? I do think that in whatever the vampire bat mom regurgitates to the baby... There, there must be some, some microbes there that serve to prime the gut of the baby vampire bat. And God, I would have loved to have some of those regurgitated samples, but it was too hard just to get fecal samples. <laughs> um, but that would be a, a really nice study if, if somebody wants to take it up. What is she doing now? I'm actually now in the industry. <laughs> I moved out of academia and now I'm in a company that produces starter cultures for fermented foods and I work in wine and cheese. <laughs> it's uh, metabolic modeling to, to try to identify the pathways in lactic acid bacteria that have to do with flavor formation. Uh, so yeah, I deviated quite a little bit from vampire bats. <laughs> Something I still don't understand is where the whole vampire myth stems from in relation to bats if blood-drinking blats don't live anywhere near Europe. Oh, that? Well, so, I did some digging, and it turns out, because I was wondering the same thing. Actually, we talked about this in the last episode, and we've talked about this other times. I was wondering the same thing. And it turns out that basically European explorers that were visiting South America... They heard stories about these bats that drank blood and they would see bites on the cattle or sometimes people that lived in the area would wake up with these bites and they would see the mark or something like that. So they took the story of these bats that drank blood and 
brought it back home with them. And pretty soon it was this idea that was being applied to all bats. People started thinking, well, maybe it's not just those bats, it's all bats that are doing this. And because the idea of being bit in the middle of the night and something drinking your blood is, well, it's kind of freaky. And people already were a little afraid of bats because of things like disease and things. They started to apply the idea that all bats drank blood, especially the really creepy looking bats. In fact, if you look at a lot of different bat species around the world that aren't anywhere near South America, in either their genus part of their scientific name or the species part of their scientific name, you'll see the word vampiris, like vampire. And the only real connection there is that they're usually the creepier looking bats. They've got a more wrinkled face or creepier eyes or sharper teeth. Some of them, though, only eat fruit. Some of them only eat insects. None of them drink blood. But it's all been a misconception. So before we wrap up, I asked Marie, is there anything you want people to know about bats? And this is what she had to say. That they can actually be cute. <laughs> and that they don't deserve all this stigma that is attached to their names. So people should take a bit more care about them. And be less scared about them. Because for sure they are more scared about you than you are about them. And now, it is time for Animal Sound of the Week. Week, week, week. Last time, we had a pretty interesting Animal Sound of the Week. And I will say that the, the question about what animal that was, or rather maybe what that animal was saying, is an old question. What didn't you say, Richard? Uh, more like an outdated meme. More like an outdated meme. It was a big hit for a long time. Would you care to share the name of the song? Uh, I, I shall not speak its name, but the animal last week was a fox. A fox. So if you've ever wondered what the fox actually says... It is not ring-ding-ding or ting-a-da-ting. It is... This week, we have a new animal sound of the week. Are your ears ready? What are we doing? I thought we weren't supposed to say the name of the animal. We're not going to say the name of the animal. We're going to do this sound. Okay. Well, are you ready? Well, what, what, what's, what animal are we going to... Oh, shoot. You can't tell me, and I can't tell you. Oh, that's right. We do know what it is. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I'll give it a shot, then you can give it a shot, then we'll give the animal a shot. How about that? Okay. Okay. Send us your guesses on Facebook for a chance to win a prize. Maybe not a great prize, but a prize nonetheless. Prize is a prize. (laughs) Remember, you can always submit your questions for us to answer on the podcast by sending us a message on Facebook at the Wildlife Blog. Get some bonus points with us. Get on our good side, on our in crowd, 
and have the chance to have your voice heard on an episode by sending us a voice message via Facebook Messenger or record a voice memo from your phone. As a third option, even easier, you can go on our website and right there on the home page there's a big green button that says Ask TWL. Click it, ask us a question, and we'll answer it here. Instructions on how to do any of that can be found at thewildlife.blog forward slash podcast. The Wildlife is supported by Christopher Trankel and Alicia, of who we do not have a last name. Wildlife is listener, reader, and viewer supported and can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. If you believe in what we're doing, you can show your support by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thewildlife. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thewildlife. When you become a patron, you'll gain exclusive access to content and have the opportunity to appear on our show to ask your questions or help read the credit. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store and share it with your friends. We can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and soon Spotify. Oh, wait, what? We're going to be on Spotify? Yes, we are! Hell yeah. Thank you for listening.